And I don't know where I came this from, but I put it on my door. It said, the kingdom of heaven is in the space in between two thoughts. And for me, it was just go find that space. Because it talks about in the Bible, the kingdom of heaven was within, right? It's happening right now. It's closer than your own breath. Isn't that what it says? It also says the carnal mind is an enmity with God. It is not under the law of God, for it cannot be. Yesterday, tomorrow, I want, I dislike. So when I go there, I'm on my own. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Greetings from Studio AA, deep in the heart of Texas. That was the voice of my friend, Mr. Brad L., that you heard at the beginning of this here episode, and you're going to hear so much more from him in just a moment. But first things first, this here episode is being brought to you by Laura and Michelle. And what you may ask, did Laura and Michelle do? Well, they went to our humble little website, www.soberspeak.com, that the Lovely Mrs. M maintains. Uh, they clicked on that little yellow donate tab and they made a a contribution. So thank you so much, Laura and Michelle. This here episode is coming right out to Ewan's. Um, so I'm gonna get into this in just a second. Uh, I don't know how much my I don't know how long my voice is gonna last. In fact, uh, I told the lovely Mrs. M that I was coming here to uh, do a little recording, and she said, "You're gonna do it with that voice," and I said, "Well, of course." They get to hear the the sexy John M voice. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't even laugh. <laughs> anyway there's a little bit of something something going around the house here and i got it and uh it'll be gone eventually uh, and and you know it also made me think of excuse me i may have to do that a few times it also made me think of this is that there is a line in the big book of alcoholics anonymous uh and it is it says something to the effect of when we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis we could not postpone or evade and then it says basically we had to face the proposition that either god is or he isn't either is everything or is nothing at all but when i I thought about that this self-imposed crisis of alcoholism we can't postpone 
or evade it. In other words, I can't take this alcoholism and push it off until next week. I and I can't evade it. I can't. I can't go to. Uh, Jersey City or wherever. <laughs> Hi, everybody up in Jersey City. Uh, I can't go to Jersey City and 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 get rid of this alcoholism. It's with me no matter what. And so I thought about that and I said, well, you know, the show must go on because alcoholism goes on, recovery goes on, whatever you are whatever your addiction is, goes on. So we can't postpone it. We can't evade it. So I, John M., must keep the show going on. And so here we are. Uh, Excuse my uh, voice, but I'm sure all is going to be well, um, oh, and this is when this uh, episode is coming out, I know it is going to be the uh, the day after uh, a Thanksgiving for those of you here in the United States. And um, I hope that, well, you know, it's usually one or two things. Either people get together and form some happy memories and they do the whole uh, Norman Rockwell thing and uh, everything goes great. Or, oh, and, and it looks like, and by the way, do not be fooled by the pictures on social media uh, where everybody looks like they're having a great time because I, sometimes they are, but sometimes they aren't. But I know I, I get uh, uh, emails and messages and such all the time from people saying, I saw this family and I wish I had that. Well, you know, you never know exactly what's going on behind the curtains. And uh, so anyway, I hope that you had a a, a great Thanksgiving day and maybe the few days after uh uh and maybe though you're like me who I for for many many years and when I what I mean by that is I was always one of these guys that never really had a place to go if you will I depended upon my uh friends and some extended family members and such and people that were uh, just so kind to me and invited me into their homes but I always felt like out of place, right? I always felt like a a, a fifth wheel, like, um, you know, I always thought, you know, if only I, and um, I, maybe that was your experience too, but nonetheless, the, um, I, I guess the solution for me has been in these years has been, you know, turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him and be willing to play the role that he God assigns in my life. Um, nothing lasts forever. Anyway, all right. So now we're on to my friend, Mr. Brad L. We are calling this episode The Kingdom of Heaven is in the Space Between Two Thoughts. I loved spending time with Brad and recording this uh, episode. Brad is such an insightful soul. Uh, we truly do cover a gamut of topics in this episode. We discuss uh, Brad's upbringing in a small town in Nebraska and how he made his way out to Santa Monica, California. We talk about emotional sobriety. We talk about the dis-ease of the mind and how that affects us all. Uh, Brad's white light moment that brought him into the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, how Brad was living on a Chevron credit card uh, for quite some time. Uh, Brad's time as a 
as a cowboy, I mean a real cowboy, not like a, a fake cowboy, which we have a lot of here in Texas. Just because you wear a belt buckle doesn't make you a cowboy. Uh, he was also a state wrestling champ in the state of Nebraska, uh, which is really tough to accomplish. He was a football player, a power lifter, uh, an expert in martial arts. Uh, we go deep on some other topics, and that really is just the tip of the iceberg with Brad. I know you're going to enjoy this, uh, and we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this here episode. Enjoy, Brad. Okay, everybody. So today we're sitting here with a an interview I've been really looking really forward to. Uh, we're sitting here with Mr. Brad L. So, Brad, before we go on, I'm going to ask you to go ahead, introduce yourself, uh, give your sobriety date if you wish, and tell people where you live in this great land of ours, or at least where you're recording from today. All right. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you too, brother. Uh, my name is Brad, and I actually um, I live in Santa Monica, California, but I always like to tell people I'm from Nebraska. Well, you have a Nebraska shirt on today. Yeah, I was going to ask no. about that. Like, <laughs> I, I'm a hick. I come from one of those really small little towns um, in Nebraska, and I had a couple of days of sobriety before I got here to California. But that's um, part of the story. But yeah, I always tell everybody I'm from I'm from Nebraska. I've been living in California, but I always be in Nebraska. And your sobriety date? Uh, March seventh of nineteen eighty seven. March 7th of 1987. You've been out this a while. Been out this a while, man. I'm very grateful for it. And more hungry today than I was before. That's good to know. Yeah. So, okay, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. So, um, I want to tell people, though, on the front end of this, how we came across each other. We have a mutual friend, Mr. Chris S. Yeah. Uh, from New Jersey. And uh, you and Chris S., how did you and Chris S. get to know each other? You know, I was living in California and I went to, there was a program out in New Jersey. I met a man just by happenstance and he had a farm out there and I've worked in recovery and the program there was really cool because it was, uh, this place in New Jersey was a little more country club than country, but it was a working farm, but it was, it was more of an estate. So we had a program out there that was an experiential program. And we had people that were in recovery that came there and worked on the farm. The cool part about it was, is they had the very same support that they would get in treatment, but we paid them to work there. So there's mm -hmm. no pressure on trying yeah. to make money or anything else like that. So I really loved it. I got out to New Jersey and I got sober in California and on the West side. And, and there was a really amazing energy out here at some great speaker meetings. Out there, I'm, uh, you know, I've kind of been accused of being a cowboy sometimes. And, and we had a horse arena out there, indoor horse arena. So some of the meetings were different. And I thought, you know, I should start, let's start a meeting. And some of us got together. And that meeting, a big meeting where I was at in New Jersey, started off would be like 30 people. We have 300 were showing up. They were coming from Philadelphia and New York. I know it's a long story to Chris, but Chris was one of the speakers that came in and him and I uh, got together and we really kind of hit it off. And sometimes I think he even calls me sponsor. And, you know, he's just a really good guy and, and really enjoyed him. And so that's how all that happened. 
Very cool. So, and and I want to go back to that uh, beginning statement that you put out there. You said you're hungrier today now than you were when you got here. So yeah. talk talk a little bit about that and how that fuels you, how that takes shape. What you mean by that? Ah, uh, well, that's a deep subject, you know, but. I really, there was something that I read about Bill Wilson and, and it so resonated with me. And and you probably know the emotional sobriety letter that Bill wrote about, you know, that he knew something, after, that something was missing. And after he wrote the emotional sobriety letter, he also wrote another letter saying, you know, and I can still remember saying, you know, I'm, I'm doing all the steps, I'm of service and I'm doing all these things, but something's not quite, it's not, something's missing. And he said, and what I loved, he said, my bright-eyed friends are telling me how well I'm doing, but he goes, deep down, I know I could be doing better. And what he said in there was that the rest of the steps will keep you sober, but it's in step 11 where you can grow. And that's what I mean more about hungry. For me, step 11 isn't 10, 11, 12, is it not something I do as much as something I live? And that God consciousness is, I like to say, is... I'm just starting to wake up and I put a few days together and, and now it's something that I'm starting to realize God can't really be talked about. God can only be lived and I'm learning to live. And, and before, you know, I, I was thinking about it. I was listening to a speaker. I was at a meeting earlier this morning and, you know, I thought I loved life, but I didn't love life. I just loved activities, just one activity after another. Today, I love life, something completely different to me. So this, this God consciousness, this awareness is uh, something that I'm really building on and something I'm really hungry for because I know what I get from it, freedom. That's what I've been looking for all my life is some freedom and peace of mind, right? Yeah, don't we? Me. Right. Yeah, don't we all? Um, okay, so let's talk then a little bit about your story. I, you, obviously, you have the Nebraska shirt on. You, I, I'm assuming you grew up in Nebraska. Tell me about your roots a little. Well, something that's kind of important to know, and but this doesn't make me an alcoholic, is I'm only a child country kid, and I actually own my family's farm ranch in Nebraska. Uh, it's been in my family since 1873. Um. Only child, but I had a brother and sister that both died. They had genetic brain diseases, and I was in the middle. And like I said, this did not make me an alcoholic, but they had, they were perfectly fine until they were three, and then they regressed to the point that they had to be fed by hand, uh, wear diapers. They couldn't talk. I, had, I can still remember the sound of this machine, John, because we had to suck the saliva out of their lungs. And they would have seizures, and I was pretty young, but I remember the seizures, and they would turn blue, and we had to take them to hospitals, and I was left behind. And like I said, none of this made me an alcoholic, but it did make me a little anxious. And so when it came to alcohol, it was such an answer to all my problems, all my anxieties, and everything else. Because I think a lot of people... There's things that happen when you're younger. Like he said, I love the effect of alcohol, what it did for me. And it seemed to soothe all that for me, right? Because I had all this anticipatory anxiety inside me. I didn't know what was going to happen next. So anyway, my parents, I always like to thank you. Thank you, Stan and Virginia, because they did such an amazing job with everything that was going on. But I was raised out in the country in Nebraska and 
a small little town of 200 people. My town's so small. How small is it? (laughs) (laughs) I have a picture of myself standing at the beginning of town, you know, where the population sign. Yeah. If you look really close in the back of the picture, you can see the other end of town. (laughs) That's how small it is. So uh, that's where it all started. And, you know, I'm kind of grateful for that because now when I go back there, you know, John, I, I see there's a simplicity there in this small town. Um, can they be a little judgmental? Yep, they can. A little narrow-minded? Yep. But the, there's something really right. And I told them they need to change the sign in the beginning of town that says God loves a small town. Mm-hmm. God loves that simplicity. And, and that's something I've been looking for. But um, So take me through any sort of major milestones that you had during your growing up, right? You, you've talked about one already. Uh, I'm assuming you started drinking and or drugging at some point. And how did that come about? Well, I can give the abbreviation of that is that after when I went to high school, so my nearest high school, I had to go about 12, 10 miles to get to high school, something like that, 11 miles. And that took several communities. So when I went to that school, a lot of these kids I didn't know. And I had such anxiety around being in social situations. And I can still remember walking into the school and there's a gentleman there named Bob Huffman, and he came up to shake my hand and said, hi, I'm Bob, and I, I didn't know what to be. I didn't know what to respond. I didn't know what to do. But what I do remember, John, is the first time I went to a party, and I had a beer, and I had the second beer, and something took place, and everything went away. As a matter of fact, what I really remember is that following Monday, because I got pretty drunk and don't remember how I got home, but people coming up and going, wow, you were funny. (laughs) And I was able to, the effect of it was amazing because all of a sudden I could talk. Mm -hmm. I could communicate. And like we all know, not only can I communicate, but everything I said was wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that's kind of how it started for me. And then from there, I found cocaine um, at the very end when I got... um, so even in small towns out in the middle of nowhere, cocaine can be procured. Like three kilos. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we were picking pot, some gentlemen from Texas. Yeah. That were questionable, questionable guys, how they were doing it. But they came through and saw this pot growing out in our fields and they go, wow. And their lies lit up and go, you can't smoke that. You're just going to get a headache. So they dried it. They got a headache, but they said, you know, it looks amazing. So they paid us $60 a pound to go out there and pick this pot because it looks so good. And they go mix it up with theirs. One time, instead of paying us money, they paid us in cocaine And, and it was on. And then really, I could be, I could talk so well, you know, it just lubricated everything. Mm-hmm. So that happened for me. And, and really like I, when I, by the time I got sober that last night, the easiest way to tell you this and kind of wrap it up was me driving down a country road in Nebraska by myself. There was snow. I can still remember the snow on my headlights and I can still remember this has been 36 years ago coming up on 37. And I had a, 
bottle of Jack Daniels and a bag of cocaine. And, you know, we all, there have been so many times, I'm not going to do this anymore. This is it. My dad's a cattle feeder and just a really right man. Was he a little angry at times? Yeah. Was he a little narrow? Yeah. But just a good man. And um, it's still emotional for me, John, because I can still remember the look on his face as he's going out to feed cattle and I'm just pulling in, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't going to do that again. But I'm driving down this country road in Nebraska by myself with that bottle of Jack Daniels, a bag of cocaine. And I was drinking the cocaine. And then when I did the, or drinking the Jack Daniels, but when I went to do the cocaine, I didn't want to take time to make lines. So I took my chapstick lid and put it in the bag. Well, it was full of rocks. So I just kind of smashed my nose together to get the hit. But something I never have forgot, and I hope I don't is with tears, still kind of emotional, with tears coming down my face, no, out loud going, no, no, please stop. And the bottle kept going up my mouth and up to my nose. And that night I had painkillers, cocaine, pot. My dad had gotten hurt in an accident and cut off three of his fingers. I had seven different types of steroids. I was taking Percocet and crushing it up in something called DMSO that absorbs into your skin. I was taking a shooting adrenaline intermuscularly and taking something called check drops that they give to female dogs in heat. And I don't remember why, but those was kind of where it got me. To. Now that's the first I've not heard of that one. No, you know, and you know what? I didn't really think I was that bad. And then I realized I've never heard anybody talk about some of this. <laughs> Because we were country kids, you know, so I had pharmaceuticals and I had vet uh, supplies. So, you know, there was all kinds of stuff we were doing. But really, that's where, for me, it was, really wasn't how I was using, but why I was using. Because as it talks in the book, that I had this dis-ease of the mind. And alcohol was so amazing lubricant for that dis-ease. It was the answer to all my problems. And then out, and then drugs, man, you throw drugs in there. And I mean, I could drink all day and keep going. I'd never pass out. But what I did remember, and it took me a while, is started to remember that, you know, every time I did not do drugs, I blacked out. And I can still remember some guys, they would sit around and think they were going to have a beer at lunch, you know, out on the farm or whatever. And I was like, how do you guys do that? Because if I drink one, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm done for the day, you know. So that's kind of where it got me to. And there was a lot of times of not showing up. And uh, go ahead. So take me back to that last night again. Perfect. When because, you were pulling up to go ahead, just kind of continue that. Well, it was perfect because I found a program of Alcoholics Anonymous that last night. So I had met a woman in California. I'd been to California one time in kind of a blackout. And I was out here and a friend of mine was a bodybuilder down in Gold's, at Gold's Gym Venice. And he introduced me to this woman. Now I knew she had a cocaine problem and she was kind of a pain in my rear. And I called him that night driving around before I went home. And he said, you know, she hasn't used anything for six months. You want to talk to her? And I said, yeah, maybe. So I, I called her. I don't remember what we said. But we talked on the phone for a while and I went home that night. And I, like I said, I've been at it for, you know, it rained that day. And country kids, when it rains, I'm like, yeehaw, because it's on all day, right? You know, we everything's done. All I have to do is feed cattle and go. 
And so that happened. So I was at the bar by 10 o'clock in the morning and it was two o'clock in the morning that night. And I'd been hard at, and I had a lot of cocaine. And what I remember here was I was laying in bed and, uh, I'd been doing all those things and I couldn't get high anymore, but I was laying there and I couldn't get my breath. And I had this white light moment and I had a white light moment and I, what happened, I couldn't get my breath. And I said, God, whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do. And I don't know if I thought it or said it. And at that moment, I had this white light moment. And I didn't see God, but I saw myself as I truly was. A, that I was a drug addict and alcoholic. But B, and I, it's hard, and I don't try not to swear, but there's only one way to say it, that I was full of shit and I've been faking it all my life. And at that moment, it was like I was stone cold sober and I could get my breath. And my whole life changed that night. And the reason I tell you that is that prayer was answered because it was the purest prayer I've ever said. Because I knew I was at a place, John, where I could do nothing for myself from myself. When I knew I didn't have the slightest little bit in there that I could muscle it together because, you know, there have been so many nights tomorrow, tomorrow. I can do it. And I got to the place that I went, I can't do it. I need something higher than Brad. I need a power other than myself. I do not have one small ounce. And it was the pure prayer. And that prayer was answered. And that was on March 6th, March 11th. I was in California. Didn't want to come here because, you know, being, a, you know, it was really bright, a lot of people and, you know, I wanted a little cloud, co little cloud cover, you know, I didn't want to do all that. <laughs> so I came to California and I thought I was going to an outpatient treatment program because they said, come to this program. And how, why California? Did you have some connections there? Remember I had told you my buddy was a bodybuilder at Gold's Gym. He had me talk to that woman. I talked to her on the phone the whole time I'm snorting cocaine and drinking Jack Daniels. She called me the next day and she said, before you borrow the money to go to a treatment center, why don't you come out here and try this program? So my small little town of going into that bank and asking for money from those people that I know all of them was not real keen. <laughs> so the option of going to California where I didn't want to go, I was open to that. And she said, don't drink anything, don't use anything on the way. And I did not. I made it. But I literally, I wished I could say, but I cried most of the way and I chewed like a can of Copenhagen every hour. <laughs> but um, so I came all the way out here and I was wanted to go. There's two things that happened. The next day she came to get me to go to this meeting, which I didn't know what it was. And um, I drove all that way to get there. John and she came and she goes, okay, ready to go. And I said, you know, I've been traveling all day. You know, maybe we should go tomorrow. And I remember the look on her face. And I went, yeah, what am I doing? I just drove here and I went and I, you know, I thought they were going to sign me up and they said, you just keep coming back. <laughs> so that's how my journey started into 12 step and AA. Wow. Okay. So you get in. Uh, and obviously you were still out there 30 plus years later. Um, I, how did that take, uh, how did you take root there? What was it like going to those, that first year of meetings? Uh, what was the difference between Nebraska and, you know, Santa Monica and were you adjusting? 
Yeah, it was hard, man. It was I was a big fish in a small pound back in Nebraska, and all of a sudden now I'm out here, lifestyle, the rich and famous, goals gym, money's like gold dripping off the trees, and all I had was a Chevron credit card, so I would have to eat at Chevron. I'm serious. <laughs> Until that ran out, and uh, I mean, I was... I was pretty shaky, you know, I was urinating blood and it was, the detox was, was not fun. So I came out here, but intuitively, uh, it opened me up to a whole new world. There was great energy there. We all went to the same meetings all the time. And like in the beginning, just like so many people, you know, I knew that there was a spiritual thing, that there was this, something happened that night that opened my eyes. I had an experience. But I didn't know how to keep it. But all I heard was go to a meeting, be of service, do these things. You'd be okay. So I did my my steps the first time within a couple of weeks. Um, nothing really moment, monumental, other than we I didn't had exposed how scared I've been all my life. You know? And was there somebody in particular who helped you through those steps? Yes, there was a gentleman I met who was my first sponsor for a while until he passed, but. Here's been a good news and bad news. The good news is my sponsors kept dying. I mean, I would have them for a year and they would pass. Really? It happened. It happened. I had four sponsors in seven years. Did you warn your sponsors when you yeah. asked them to be your sponsor? <laughs> no, I didn't tell them. The death was inevitable. <laughs> Excuse me. But really for me, the story wasn't, it really wasn't about my drinking and using. What I noticed for me, because I got out of here, I'm doing all the meetings, just like they were talking about, but I, it just didn't feel right. And I really, really struggled in sobriety. And there's so many things in the big book, it talks about us being in full flight from reality. And that always kind of struck me a little bit. And what does that mean that I'm full flight from reality, right? And something that Bill said, that one thing that resonated with me more than anything that Bill Wilson talked about, he said, that I memorized this the drive for success was on. I was going to prove to the world I was important. So for me, John, you, we could talk about me drinking and using because there's a lot. But I can tell you more than anything, all the effort I put into trying to add something to myself to feel important and successful. So when I was a kid growing up to be a cowboy was popular. And I mean, I had a belt buckle when I was a little boy. It looked like I had a dinner plate on. You know? And, <laughs> You know, my mom wouldn't let me chew tobacco till I was six or seven. So <laughs> I used to take candle wax and ball it up. So when we'd be out gathering cattle or moving around, I would, you know, if they spit, the other, the real cowboys would spit. I'd spit too because I wanted to be a cowboy. I thought if I could really be a cowboy, then I would feel okay. When I went to high school, they kind of poo pooed the cowboy thing a little bit, but I noticed the athlete was popular and he got the girl and. Where I came from in Nebraska, football is kind of a big thing, but also wrestling was a really big thing. And, and I just thought for sure if I could be that wrestler because I knew, I knew I was scared. I've always been. There's just been so much fear in there. So I did everything I could. I, I got injured a couple times, but I only got to wrestle my last two years. But what I never forget is uh, to be a state champion in Nebraska, that was supposed to be like the pinnacle and if I had that, I'd be okay. I can remember this so clearly. I won that state championship, and I was sitting there with my grandfather, and the guy that beat me the year before came walking by, and I don't know what he said. But how he said it, it just 
put a pop my bubble and I felt all the balloon come, all the air come out of my balloon. And so for me, my definition of codependency is allowing the behavior of someone else to dictate how I feel. And so for me, that's what happened all my life. One event would come along and my balloon would inf inflate. Another event would come along and it would deflate. The person that looked at me a certain way, it would inflate. They look at me another way, it would deflate. That's not fear freedom, brother. I got sore to be a free of everyone and everything. And so when, even when I got home, I remember they put signs up in my front of our lane. Our line is probably about a quarter mile long. And there was all these signs, welcome home, state champion. It's such a telling thing. And I didn't realize it until a few years ago that I forgot. I went home and the first thing I did is tear them all down. I didn't feel like I deserved it. Mm -hmm. I wasn't good enough. And I'd done everything I possibly can. So I thought I'd go away to, uh, to play football, right? And I thought if I could just be a football player, then it'd be all right. And I got hurt a bunch. And some of these guys were amazing athletes. And some were just eat glass and breathe fire. And I didn't have that meanness in me until you really pushed. And then it was there. Uh, I probably couldn't defend myself, but I would do it for someone else. But I got into working out and lifting weights. And um, that was another thing that I had tried to add to myself because that was the steroids. And so at one time, I've weighed 245. I weigh about 180 now. But I've weighed 245. I had a 51 jacket. I had a 30-inch waist. And I was squatting, deadlifting over 600. But the reason I tell you that is I was still scared to death. I knew it didn't fix it. And I remember there was one man in Omaha, Nebraska. He's passed now. I was at a bar and I offered to buy him a drink and he said, no, thank you. And it struck me because he was this short Jewish guy. And it just, it was just kind of felt intimidating. I said, do you want some cocaine? And he said, no, again. And I went, what? And I shrunk. When I got sober, I called him up because he had a jewelry store back there. He passed too. He's sober. He was a sober guy, really nice guy. He actually had a jewelry store on Rodeo Cam and Cannon Drive here in Beverly Hills. So I called him up back 1988 and I said, Hey, Alan, you know, that ring that you were going to do 30 days, same as cash? Well, it's been three years. <laughs> <laughs> and I still owe you. And he goes, Well, I see you're starting to make amends. That guy was sober. Wow. And I didn't know it, but I knew there was something different about that dude. So the reason I tell you all that is then I got into martial arts. You know, I thought if it could be a martial arts and I'm leading the class in martial arts as a white belt. That's how intense I was. But the fear was still there. And that's why I say that, you know, we could talk about drinking till I come turn blue, but it was what drinking did to cover up all that stuff. Because for me, all those things that I said and did when I ingested alcohol or drugs, the bad news is drugs and alcohol didn't make me say and do those things. Drugs and alcohol took away all my inhibitions, so that's what came out. I got sober and I put the lid on it. That's where it gets tricky. Mm. And so for me, we have to stay sober long enough to find out what it means to be sober. Then we start to wake into their steps and you asked me about staying here in California. There's part of me wanted to go back to Nebraska, but the A meetings here in Los Angeles on the West side, I mean, they're just alive. I mean, you had, it was a different vibration than anything I'd ever experienced before. 
But I met a man out here that was a little bit different than anybody I'd ever met in sobriety. He still is. Um, very quiet, spoken guy. Uh, he was the first person to bring AA into the schools in California and in Los Angeles. First person to start teen meetings in Los Angeles. Nobody knows who he was. So I really struggled in the beginning. And, you know, I was doing all the things, but I called him up. His name was Jim. Now I'm going to say his name because Jim Dunnigan. He's passed too. And he was the first therapist at Clara Foundation in Los Angeles. And I called him up and this guy was just, like I said, I worked my, I had my first job in Los Angeles was working at a mental hospital, a dual diagnosis treatment center. So I worked on a lockup ward and Jim was a therapist there. But when he came walking in, there was something about that guy that was different than anybody else. And I started talking to him and I called him up one day at about a year and I said, you know, Jim, I'm just so full of anxiety and I'm so scared. And what am I going to do? Because I'm doing the stuff. I'm not drinking. I'm sober. I've got these commitments. I, I'm doing the panels. What am I doing wrong? And he stopped me and he goes, one day at a time isn't going to work for you. I was like, okay, now I'm screwed because I thought that was the program. And he <laughs> said, what are you doing next? I said, I'm going to get in the shower. I'm going to go to a meeting. He goes, here's what you're going to do. Write, get out a piece of paper and a pen. I said, okay. And he says, write this down. I am now, draw a line, exclamation mark. I was kind of dumbfounded by that. He said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go, I'm now turning on the faucet. I'm now getting in the shower. I'm now picking up the shampoo. I'm now, I had hair then. I'm now washing my hair. I'm now walking to the door. And I got some relief. That was my first awakening to that. But I should back up. Jim spoke at a meeting. It was at the Marina Center. And I was sitting there. And I was really, you've been at a meeting where you're really troubled by something. You're listening, but you're not really listening. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? And you're kind uh, of staring, yeah. usually staring at the floor, <laughs> right? <laughs> and my gut was churning. Jim was up there talking. He goes, the chief problem with the alcoholic is that he's asleep. And he went, and hit the podium, and I jumped out of my chair. And it took me a minute. I couldn't remember what I was so worried about. It took me a while to get back to it, and I went, wow, that's interesting. It was all in my mind. So when I called him and he told me that, something resonated with that. And what I realized for me and what the Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me on this spiritual path is my job is to to expose my darkness to light so something higher can get in there. So what I found was for me is that this full flight from reality when I was a young man, that reality that was so painful to watch is the only safe place I know. Mm -hmm. Because for me, this is mine, God, truth, reality are all the same thing. That that reality and that place in reality to have a conscious contact with God, there's a prerequisite with that. I have to be conscious. But see, if I'm in the future or in the past, I'm not unconscious. I'm thinking two different things. And what I love when it says we have this disease in the mind, if I have a disease in the mind, it'd be very wise to use that less. So Jim got me started on this, and, and I started to realize that. This wasn't about drugs and alcohol. This is the way I think. It wasn't the object of my thinking that was the problem. 
it was my thinking period. And so when I first got sober, John, and you can see, I don't know if people can see my hands, but I have my left hand above my right. And my mind was king and my spirit was its slave. Where I'm going is where my hand, right hand just went higher and my left hand went lower is where my spirit is king and my mind is its obedient servant. That's what the steps in the spiritual program can do for me. So I can learn to be a spiritual being instead of thinking and planning all the time. Okay. So <clears throat> let's put this into practical, in reality. Right. Uh, and what I mean by that is I understand all that and it's, and it's great. And what I struggle with, I think what probably all of us struggle with is like, you can know that up in your head, right? Is that I should not be, I should concentrate on now what's in front of me, you know, where my feet are and I should not be, you know, I, I know all these thoughts in my head because most of us have had the experience before to where you know, the night before you're just all caught up in, uh, you know, all, all sorts of thoughts and, and you, you can't sleep and all that sort of stuff. And then the day after, or maybe the day after that, all of a sudden you're just fine. Nothing has really changed in your life, but I couldn't stop that thinking going on in my head. And I know prayer and meditation helps, but give some, give people some kind of, I don't know, um, guidance on, you know, Perfect. what you do to stay in the now. Well, first of all, the first three steps for me are all about staying in the now. Everything about, you know, I looked up the word unmanageable. Does that, do you know that means troublesome or awkward? Mm -hmm. My life has been troublesome and awkward. So for me, if I'm really doing the first three steps, yes, I have to have, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a plan. But pro problem is, is I'm living in it all the time, right? It's not natural. So our book says we relax and take it easy. We do not struggle, right? Mm -hmm. Several times throughout the day. So if relaxation is my natural state, you just did it. If relaxation is my natural state, if I'm not relaxed, that means I'm living life unnaturally. So I need to start there. I need to slow down. I need to relax myself. I need to get grounded, right? Talks about it in the morning. Says when we awaken. That moment there, the real trick to this is you can't do with the mind what needs to be done with the spirit. And it's not a change of thought. Change Whoa, of hold, thought. On, hold on, hold on. I, that was good. I, I just want to make sure I understand that. Yeah. You can't do with the mind what you need to do with the, with spirit. the spirit. And I understand that intellectually. What, what do you mean by that? Go, dive into that a little well, more. This is deep. So there used to be a, a gentleman down in Venice Beach. His name was Lenny. And he would share an adamant guy, jazz player. And he'd start talking. He goes, and when Rufus starts talking to me, he named his alcoholism Rufus. <laughs> and what happens is I become an expert on Rufus. I don't, Rufus, that's not who I am. Who I truly am is much greater to than all that. If you want to find out who you are, don't become an expert on who you are. Become an expert on who you're not. Mm. So I had to learn meditation is nothing more than separating from that, right? I don't try to stop it. I just watch it. So I work with horses. You can have a herd of wild horses going by fast. As long as you watch them go on by, no problem. 
So that wild horse could be anger, agitation. But if you go get on one as they're running by, you got issues. It's going to be a problem. <laughs> For me, I need to slow down enough, slow riding, to be able to see these things as they're coming and just watch them go right on by. But here's the tough part. I'm not responsible for the thoughts. I'm responsible for the thinking. So the thought can come up like, geez, I got to do, and I'm going, ah, I see what you're doing. God help me. And I do this all day long. And so what happens is I've learned to not be so identified. The origin of the word I is ego. So you can tell how much ego you have by how much you use the word I. And as I learned working in recovery is I'm very careful about saying I'm angry, I'm fearful, I'm anxious. There's a feeling of anger passing through me. There's a feeling of anxiety passing through me, and it will pass. But see, the difficult thing about this, we talk about freedom from bondage itself. This is deep stuff. Go for it. But I don't make that self better. I get free of it. Okay, I so don't try to yes, go ahead. So, so let me so once again, I'm I'm trying to put this into like a, a day to day thought process and Perfect. what you do with these thoughts as you're coming around. So because you're going through the day, and I'm assuming at some point you've dealt with a a boss that you don't particularly care for, or oh, there's yeah. right, right, and you're thinking that this boss is giving you a hard time from your perspective, right? From the boss's perspective, it's yeah. probably not that, but nonetheless, and and you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, I just do not want to work for he or she anymore, and what am I going to do here? And you're, and what you do to kind of ground yourself is what? First thing is, who is that talking? My mouth's closed. So uh, I don't want to work for him. Who in the world is that? Because to be, let's be deep. You want to go for it? Go for it. All that's coming from past. That's time thinking. You talk, this is meditation in real time. So I watch it. I see it come up. I try to get light spirit. And I go, yeah, I see what you're trying to do. God help me. And I get right back to my left hands on the desk. I start to be aware of the tone of my voice. I look up and around, just as I'm doing now. I try to become aware of the room. I start to be aware that I have more weight on my right arm than my left. And I'm here. And all of a sudden, it's gone right on by. Oh, and easier said than done, as oh, you know. Yeah, yeah. But but okay. here's the thing, John. But you got to practice it. Every time you do it, it lessens. You may have to do it a million times, but every time you do it, you're creating a little more gap, and a little more gap. But here's the only tough news: the prison guards do not try to bother the prisoners that aren't trying to escape. <laughs> <laughs> so that mind, that dis-ease in the mind, man, when you try to escape, it doesn't get quieter. It gets louder. I had a chance to sit down with the Dalai Lama, not because I was spiritual. Somebody paid a lot of money and they couldn't go. <laughs> and that's been kind of the definition of my life. I got a chance to meet Eckhart Tolle, same deal. Somebody, you want to go? And I went, yeah, I'll go check him out. But what was really amazing is the Dalai Lama said, if you meditate for years and years and years and years, you'll finally get to see that way deep down inside. And there was about five or six of us in this room. Everybody leaned forward and he said, you'll really get to say that deep down inside, you wanted nothing to do with these teachers. And I went, I know. 
that I have so much resistance in there. And the, the tough part is to be able to see the resistance that's in there and not be identified with it, but to really see it, that there's resistance to change. Because what really caught me is if my God is what I think about all day, what is my God? And as I started to check that out, I went, oh, wow. It's money, food, sex, other people in reference to myself. And I started to check these things out and I started to get more freedom, which is nothing more than our daily inventory and a spot inventory. Nothing more than whenever I'm disturbed. Well, I just became an expert. I'm trying to become an expert on the disturbances and not and not push them away. And the tough part about this, and here's the one thing that I had to learn too, is probably one of the most enlightened persons I've ever met said, Brad, the people in the world in it aren't as bad as you think they are. And I said, really? He goes, no, it's much, much worse. <laughs> <laughs> but when you can see through it and not get negative about it, you'll be free of it. But to see through it, Brad, you're going to have to see through your own pretense, your own personality. And the word personality comes from the Latin word persona, which means mask. What I hide behind my mask. And we can do that sober. We've all done it. That's just not drinking. That's sober. That's that's advanced. Because for me, there's physical sobriety, there's emotional sobriety, and then there's spiritual sobriety. And part of that is look taking the mask off and then not trying to change it. Let God change it. That's from there. I want to talk about, you mentioned something, well, uh, a couple things. You mentioned something earlier about working in the the treatment arena or recovery arena, and then also yeah. you mentioned the horses as well. Oh, T- yeah. Tell me ab- about that. Great story. You know, I my horses helped me through when I was a little boy. Wow. Yeah, I just spent a lot of time with those horses on a little little boy, and you know, I always liked horses. And I got involved with equine therapy, and and here's where my whole thing changed. Where I was at up at Will Rogers State Park, I used to work with the homeless kids down in Venice, and I used to bring them up to the park, and there's like feral cats. And then we had some of the gang guys come from East LA, and uh, they're tatted all the way around their face. But also because of where I'm at, I've had world champion athletes. I've had people from the Forbes list. I've had celebrities on my horse, John. Horse never knew the difference. But what I saw, I put them in a round pen together to have them work with horses. And what I noticed was that horse immediately knew who was separate from it, who it wasn't, who was connected to it, who wasn't. He didn't care about if you were a man with five million or a man with five cents. He didn't care if you were the president or the janitor. But what he did notice was who's separate. And that's when my whole life changed because I realized God's the very same way. God doesn't know the difference between a man with five million and a man with five cents. God doesn't know the difference between the president and the janitor. God only sees separation. And that my life here is about the only thing of true lasting value I do is sobriety about connecting. Because what I was saying is I've always tried to be strong, John. This is about connecting to what is strong, not being strong, something completely different. And that really changed everything for me with those horses and nature. And there is no better meditator than horses because nature is always going forward. It's always changing, but it's always right now. It never goes back in time. 
And what I realized is because I'd done so many things that God's not interested in my past. I am, but God's not. God's already on to the next thing. Now, I have this disease in the mind has a difficult time to let go of it. And it is right to pay, pay restitution for what I've done wrong. But God is already on to the next thing. All you have to do is watch nature a little bit and really see that it does not go back in time. It's always going forward, but it's always right now. And for me, that's where that that freedom has been and that reality, you know. Oh, wow. That is cool. I I, I didn't know. So is it, where do you keep a horse in Santa Monica? <laughs> <laughs> I've actually... When I was in Philly, I rode my horse up the first few flight of steps at the Philadelphia Art Museum. Not that I'm trying to draw attention, but uh, Will Rogers State Park uh, is in Pacific Palisades. And uh, I was so grateful. When I first came here, I had nothing. And I used to just drive around. So I drove down this street in Pacific Palisades, which is Lifestyle and the Rich and Famous. And there was a sign that said, Private Road, Keep Out, which means I should go check that out. So <laughs> I, I drove down that road. It's a private road. I mean, like we had Stevie Nicks, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Michael Keaton, Dennis Quaid, John Houston. That's all that lived on that road. But I went driving down there. I looked up and there was this horse stall. And I went, my life would be so complete if I could have a horse in that horse stall. That was 1988. 1996, I had a horse parked in that very same stall, and I didn't try to do it. Someone called me, wow. and I had a horse, and I'm still there. The other cool thing about another quick story is I'm looking at the ocean as we're talking. I had no place to live. I was living in my car, people's sofas. That therapist, Jim, my apartment's like a U-shape facing the ocean, and, and I was subletting, but you're not supposed to sublet in California. So they said, be very low key. So I used to crawl out the window so nobody would see me coming out the door. <laughs> Jim, this is how my life has worked out in spite of me. Jim called me up and he goes, where do you live? And I told him, he said, I have someone you want to meet. She's trying to get sober. She was the apartment manager. She lived on the other side of the courtyard. I started taking her to meetings. The owner of the building she died of alcoholism. He came to me, and it's rent control, so I, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you what I pay for rent. He said, listen, I'm going to really tick some people off, but if you want an apartment, I'll give you one. And I took the apartment. I'm still here 35 years later. Wow. Same place. Wow. So that's how things have kind of worked out for me in sobriety. But um, it's been a really amazing journey. So... In terms of what you want to leave with, um, you know, you have a lot of people that are listening to this podcast. Some are involved in sobriety. Some are kind of like, dipping their foot in the pool. Why don't you share just your kind of experience, strength, and hope and what you want people to know about your journey uh, and how uh, that, if it's possible for you, it may be possible for them as well. Yeah. You know, there was a drive. I got around, like I said, there were some people. Uh, there was a guy, I remember Chuck C. Chuck, mm -hmm. Chuck. You know, he talked differently than other people, right? What I found out is the reason he did was he was all about, that chapter is entitled Working with Others, Not Helping Others. 
But he was all about passing this message of sobriety on. That's A. B is he was in a search. He was reading a lot more than the big book. He was really involved in a religion. I happened to find my way there too. And I found myself in a couple other teachings that I put the same energy into that I did my A. I'm very grateful for it because that really taught me a lot. Those two things, those two things, because that's where I learned about more about prayer, meditation, what could be, right? But I've never forgot because I've seen people, I've seen people try to do just religion and I've seen a lot of mishaps. But I have seen people that took AA and that, I've never seen a mishap. I haven't, not yet. But they seem to have something solid. The ones that are always passing the message on, maybe it's just not of sobriety, of the spiritual way of life. But for me is that a lot of this, I had to start to see that God's definition of life and man's was not the same. There was a big gap in between it. And I had to get from that lower, because all my life I've gone horizontal, the answer's vertical. And so doing that, there used to be, there was a Russian philosopher named Gurdjieff, and he said, man's asleep dreaming, he's awake. And so I know that to be true. And for me is there's a, what I found is that sobriety is the only thing of true lasting value. Everything else is temporary. My money's temporary. This physical body's temporary. My relationships are temporary. What stood out for me the most is a definition of humility is to have a low view of my position and rank in the world. That blew me away because I thought I was supposed to have the highest position, the highest rank. A friend of mine is in the top 200 in the Forbes list. I was walking with him in Beverly Hills one day when I first got sober, and he said, what is wrong with you? And I said, I've got such financial insecurity and low self-worth. And he stopped me, he looked at me, and just in a look, the only somebody that knows, he goes, yeah, me too. And that's when I realized it's not going to be an outside job. It's an inside job. And from there, I thought abundance was acquiring things. I have an abundance of experiences way beyond what a billionaire has because I've really experienced, I can't tell you what I've seen. I've set up at the move where they did the movie, the horse whisperer up on a hill. And then I'm able to see a hundred miles, every direction. I've been up a place called point conception and watched the killer whales go by the amount of abundance in my life that has nothing to do with material wealth has been amazing. And that's what I was looking for all my life was some freedom and peace of mind. I just thought I could get it. By acquiring something, our program's about letting go of something. So what is that I need to let go? That's something that you can, you have to find out for yourself. In sobriety, only you alone could do it. We can't do it alone. But at some point on this spiritual journey, some of this I have to take off on my own and go discover. I've got to find out what it means to me. It says in the book, don't be afraid to find out what this stuff means to you. If you just believe in what I say, it can be taken away. But if you experience this, no one can take it away for you. A quick one is that in the Bible, the word remember is in there twice as many times as the word faith. The origin of the word remember is mindful, to be aware of what I'm doing. So I'm just saying if it's in there twice as many times, it might be more important. Mm -hmm. Right? 
So I know we're running out of time, but I can tell you something that really helped me. And I, and I don't know where I came this from, but I put it on my door. It said, the kingdom of heaven is in the space in between two thoughts. And for me, it's just go find that space. Because it talks about in the Bible, the kingdom of heaven was within, right? It's happening right now. It's closer than your own breath. Isn't that what it says? That's right. Yeah. It also says the carnal mind is an enmity with God. It is not under the law of God, for it cannot be. Yesterday, tomorrow, I want, I dislike. So when I go there, I'm on my own. A lot today. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, man, that was great. And no, 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 that, that was great. I really appreciate your time. This has been a... Uh, Oh gosh, uh, you know, I never know, I, I didn't know you very well coming into this, right? We've had a couple of different conversations because we were trying to get, you know, together some conferences or, you know, speaking engagements and th stuff like that, but I didn't really know what to expect, uh, but that's why I do these things, right? I'm, I'm taking these notes for, not only for the listeners, but for myself, uh, and uh, this has just been uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful time together. I really appreciate it, Brad. I always end it with the big book, page 164. I'm going to read that from that right now. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Amen. Once again, my friend, thank you so much for your time yeah, today. Brother. Yeah, I hope we cross paths sometimes. Yes, and very soon. All right, John. Thank you again, Mr. Brad L. That was absolutely fantastic. Uh, I'm going to look forward to spending some more time with you. As you know, we have you set up to so do some additional recording. Now, remember, for those of you listening out there, we do not want you sharing your gossip or your toothbrush or your hair uh, uh, brush. Well, I guess I've seen girls share her brushes. I, uh, maybe guys do it too, but no, we don't want you sharing any of that stuff, but we would love for you to pause your device, click on that little share button and pass it over to a friendly friend or family member. That episode with Brad L may be just what they need today. If you have any comments, you want to reach Brad uh, or you just want to reach out to me about any of the other speakers or anything else, feel free to reach out at John J O H N at soberspeak.com. I think I just uh, said the word reach or reach out about uh, five or six times in a row. I don't, it, there was way too many reaches in there. Anyway, uh, if you have a story to share also, uh, as someone who has touched your heart in recovery, a sponsor, a counselor, um, or perhaps you just want to share about something you're going through right now, some sort of struggle, um, reach out to me, John, J-O-H-N at SoberSpeak.com. Um, I always like to hear the notes and hear what you're doing out there. And for those of you, uh, I, as you know, I always like to hear kind of like what people are doing when they're listening to the podcast. They, I get all kinds of uh, uh, 
input on that. But anyway, all right. So the first thing we have here on do a little bit of listener feedback. The first thing I have here is a voicemail from Tracy S regarding, uh, and she didn't say the episode number in there, but this is episode number two, nine, zero. God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And that is with Mr. Curry in, uh, if you want to go back and listen to this episode, but here you go with, uh, Tracy. Hi, this is Tracy. And I just listened to the show, uh, God does for you what you cannot do for yourself. And I truly, truly agree to that. Uh, with my sponsor and I, we are working on my character defects. So that this show was really good for inspiring me and remembering that, um, my higher power is, uh, taking those away from me because I'm asking. And he's not only taking them away, he is turning them into a positive, turning them around. Uh, some things you have for a reason and you just use them for the wrong reason. So thank you. Thank you, Tracy. I really appreciate you leaving that uh, voicemail. And uh, I'm so glad you got uh, inspiration uh, from Curry's episode. He's is quite a guy, uh, a good friend as well. Uh, is a little bit bothersome sometimes. <laughs> he's not, he's not at all. He's a good guy. Anyway, thanks for, uh, uh sending that in Tracy. We appreciate. Yeah. Mandy writes in, and this is the, oh, Mandy, where you came and you gave, well, I'm taking, and I sent you away, oh, Mandy. Anyway, she writes in, and the subject line is Jason J. She says, hello, John, Mandy M., alcoholic here from Portland, Oregon. I just say Oregon because I know people from Oregon uh, don't like you to say that, and I'm just trying to get under their, oh, what, what do you call that? A burn of the saddle, something like that. Uh, get under their skin, I think is what you call it also. Anyway, she says, Jason J is getting me all choked up over here. She's talking about his episode number one, especially hearing him talk about his little boy self and his grandmother's relationship. Sounds like she was spot on when she would say he's a good kid. I can't wait to hear more from him next week. John, thank you for this fantastic podcast is one of my favorites p.s does your shower still work <laughs> i forgot about that sometimes i i uh, talk about things on the podcast and then like I, you know i get like a and then i release it later and i forget what i talked about and it took me a second to realize <laughs> She was talking about uh, uh, on that episode where I talked about some amends process. And I'm not going to go into it. Yes, yes, man, uh, my shower still works. <laughs> appreciate you being concerned about me. Dan writes in and Dan says, Hi, John. First of all, thank you for your service and what you do to bring us great speakers and a strong message of recovery. You're welcome, Dan. He says, my sober date is uh, 23rd of July, 2021, and I'm currently living in the mid-north coast of New South Wales, Australia, four hours north of Sydney. I'm taking a year off work to properly 
recover after 17 years in the Navy uh, and the mental and physical toll it took combined with my drinking has taken on me. My favorite speakers are Mark Houston, Charlie, whom I was devastated to hear of his passing, and Katie Parker, uh, Chris and Myers are Joe Hawk, uh, Bob D, Chris S, Scott L, Sandy Beach, Earl H, Astrid, Scott Redmond, Russell S. I don't think I know Russell S. Uh, if you have his contact information, let me know. Anyway, uh, Stevie B, Doug F, Don P, and I'm sure I'm forgetting many more. Excuse me, folks. And he says, I found the podcast trawling. Oh, I like that word. T-R-A-W-L-I-N-G. Trawling through recovery podcasts. And I saw you interviewed and include some of my favorite speakers. And as someone who listens to speaker tapes throughout the day to help, uh, to help me sleep, throughout the day and to help me sleep, it was great to find another source of amazing material. Anyway, thank you for all you do. God bless Dan. God bless you, Dan. Thank you for writing in, my friend. I sure appreciate ya. Um, <clears throat> all right. So now I'm going to end the uh, I'm going to end this episode with a song that a listener, not me singing a song, <laughs> but, but like an actual professional song, a listener uh, wrote in. His name is Gunter. Gunter. And Gunter wrote in, and uh, this song is called, and he, he gave me the MP3, and he says, uh, I'd appreciate you playing this on one of your episodes. And I said, okay, I'll put this at the end of one of my episodes coming up. And, and the name of the song is called Call On Me, and it's by the name of the group, I believe this is the group name, Gabriel Scar, and it's a song about fighting alcohol addiction and the people trying to help them. So Gabriel Scar is a rock band from Belgium, uh, and uh, this is about people who spin out of control. Uh, Gunther wrote the song. He is the lyrics and the writer of uh, wait, the singer and the lyrics writer of the band. Uh, and this relates to his direct experience uh, in helping someone close to him to try to fight their alcohol addiction. Uh, and as he says, uh, it's a battle with ups and downs, but everyone needs to talk to somebody and they need support. Uh, Gabriel Scar, the name of the, the band, uh, hopes the song will be a support for a lot of people uh, as music helps the souls. If you're interested in finding this particular song, you can find it on. Okay, so it's called, uh, it's on YouTube. It's called Gabriel Scar Call On Me. That's the official video. Uh, I'll I'll try to remember to put a link to that in the show notes. And there's all this is also available on Spotify. Once again, I'll uh, put that in the show notes. And if you have any questions on it, uh, you can call me. Not call me. You can write me. <laughs> John J O H N at soberspeak.com, and I'll get you in touch with Gunter and gang. All right, everybody. Uh, that is another episode in the books. I'll leave you with this song. Uh, but remember, folks, uh, 
keep coming back. It works if you work it. And may God bless you and keep you until then. And Gunter, thank you for uh, letting us uh, play this song on the podcast. Bye-bye, everybody. your back.